Welcome, listeners, to the third season of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and your podcast host. Tune in and join me as I chat with authors writing in cozy and traditional mysteries. You won't find explicit violence, sex, or gore. You will find intricate plots, engaging characters, and brilliant writing. Thanks for listening. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Liz Milliron joins me in the corner today to chat about her latest home front mystery, The Stories We Tell. Welcome, Liz. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well, the Stories We Tell is the second home front mystery. Would you please tell us about your series and what your sleuth's up to this time? Uh, sure. The series is set in the early years of, 19, of World War uh, we're in the end of 1942 here. Um, Betty Ahern is a young woman. She's working for Bell Aircraft uh, by day, uh, but what she really wants to do with her life is she wants to be a private investigator like Sam Spade. She's a big movie buff. Um, and the first book was her, her first major case. And in this one, she's approached, she's been doing small cases for girls at work, uh, trying to build her reputation. Um, and one of her coworkers comes to her at the beginning of the book and says, um, my grandmother just died and I don't, they say it was a heart attack, but I don't believe her. I think she was murdered. Um, so Betty starts and says, starts the investigation, says, I'm not really sure how much this is going to happen, but I'll give it a shot and is just about ready to write it off as natural causes um, when some fishy uh, things intersect with a visit from the Polish government in exile in Buffalo, um, where a young man goes missing and it all kind of snowballs from there into something much bigger. Now, in 1940s era, female private detectives are kind of a rarity. So how did you decide to make your protagonist a private investigator? Um, it was, it, the whole series kind of came out of a short story I did for a Malice Domestic Anthology back in 2016. Um, and the character of Betty is very loosely uh, inspired by my grandmother, who actually did work for Bell Airplane uh, back in the, in the war. And when I started this short story, it was kind of a what if. It's like, well, what if a girl who works there, who is a movie buff and who really likes, you know, Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe, those type of movies, um, what happens if she shows up at work one day and some and there's a dead body? And of course, since she's, this is what she likes to watch in the movies and these are her heroes, she thinks, well, you know, I can do this. I, I this would be cool. Um, and she, so she gives it a spin and she discovers that she is pretty good at it and she does like it. It's, you know, it, she, she really enjoys kind of puzzling out uh, the, the problem. So it was, it kind of just fell out of a what's it, what if situation. Now you said you're starring in Buffalo, which is quite yes. different from New York City, which is the city most people think of when they hear New York. So what's right. Buffalo like? I'm sure there's more to it than snow and chicken wings. Uh, yes, yes. There's a lot more to it than snow and chicken wings. And yes, there's like almost 600 miles between 
people think of New York City. New York, they think, you're right, they think New York City and they forget that there's an entire state. Um, Buffalo being right on the lakes um, at the time was actually a big deal. Like right now, the industry is with this, the falling apart of the steel industry, it's just starting to come back. But if you go back in history to World War II, um, Buffalo was like the 17th biggest city in the country or something like that. It was, it was considered a major city. It was a major port on Lake Erie. The, they had a lot of industry uh, from Bethlehem Steel and steel manufacturing. They had a, a General Motors plant at Bel Airplane, which is up closer to Niagara Falls. Um, they had a lot of boat traffic on, you know, on the lakes coming down, um, the, the grain elevators were still in full swing. There still is, um, although it was a, a much bigger deal back then, uh, a General Mills, the whole city smelled like Cheerios at night. <laughs> My dad and I used to laugh. We saw a line of candles that like a sense and we're like, really the, the one for Buffalo should just smell like Cheerios. <laughs> um, so it was, but it was, it was kind of a, it was a big deal city. It was a bustling metropolis, but um, once you got outside this city, it didn't have the sprawl of New York City. It still doesn't. Um, so it was, it was a big deal, but it on a but it was on a much smaller scale. Um, but people don't know. I mean, they think now they think, yeah, snow and chicken wings, and the snow has been there for forever. It was still snowy. Um, chicken wings did not exist in the 1940s. Uh, but they forget or they don't know that it was a, a major hub of manufacturing and transportation back in the day. And is that why it was important in the defense industry during the war? Yes, um, pretty much. Um, well, because, you know, you did. You had Bethlehem Steel. Actually, Buffalo for a number of years was a nuclear target. Um, because of its manufacturing. So you, you had Bethlehem Steel, which was obviously supplying, you know, steel to make planes and cars and tanks and, and whatever. Um, they had General Motors, which was making Allison engines for planes and other, you know, uh, war manufacturing. There's a Ford, there was, and there still is a Ford Motor Company that was manufacturing they went from manufacturing cars to manufacturing Jeeps and, and trucks and, and, you know, vehicles for the army and for the military. Um, and it was, it's interesting. My father just gave me a magazine. Um, they had training for pilots taking off and landing in aircraft carriers. They converted two barges uh, to uh, aircraft carrier like uh you know, vessels, they had them on the lakes. And that's where pilots went to learn how to land and take off on aircraft carriers before they shipped out to the Pacific. It was called like the, the corn, what was, I can't find the magazine, the Cornfield Navy or something like that. So yeah, it was a lot of war industry. And that's pretty much why it, that's what built it up. Yeah. And was, was the Polish government really in exile there? Um, they did actually visit. That, that part of the story is based on um, a nugget I found researching online. I was looking for, you know, what was, because when I start the books, I always try to look at, well, what was happening in World War II during the time that the book is happening? Um, and I did find that the Polish government did, in fact, make a visit to Buffalo. It was a two-day visit. Um, 
probably they weren't very a lot of very specific about it, but it was probably to raise money and awareness um, for the Polish exiles. Um, there was a, a very large Polish population, but like Pittsburgh or like Detroit, like a lot of those Rust Belt cities, there were a lot of immigrants, a lot of Irish, a lot of Polish, a lot of um, Eastern European. Um, and there still is a huge Polish population up in Buffalo. Um, so they would, it would have been a natural stopping point because there would have been a lot of people who were maybe only one or two generations removed from being from living in Poland and who might have family still in Poland. So it would have been a good stop for them to kind of campaign, remind people that, you know, tell people that no, they were the real government in Poland, not the, not the puppets that the Nazis had appointed. But they did actually stop that, that part of the, the book is true. Now you, you include a lot of period details, um, like the, the uh, history of the defense industry, the Polish visits, um, a lot, there's a lot of uh, period slang. You obviously researched it very well. So what challenges did you face, including you know, enough details to make a reader feel like they're truly in 1942 without overwhelming oh, yeah. them they feel like they're reading a history textbook? Yeah, I don't want them to feel like they've gone back to history class. Um, the, the, the language, the, di- the, the slang is always important. Um, and I owe, owe a terror of terrors. I, have, I watch a lot of 1940s movies to get that right and read, read books that are set back there. So it's, yeah, I don't want to burden people with the slang, but they need, I want the characters to feel like they're there. Um, so there's that research. There's also the historical research. When I write, I actually have a timeline of what was happening in, in the World War, you know, day by day. Oh, this was this battle, and this guy did this, and you know, and so I can sprinkle because Betty has a, a her fiance is with is uh, in North Africa with the First Armored Division, so I want to sprinkle in just enough um, details to you know make people feel that yes, there is actually a war going on. Um, I've spent a lot of time uh, researching just bits of everyday life, like what was grocery shopping like? What was it like to have a ration book? Like, how did you do this? How did you go to the grocery store? How did a coupon book actually even work? Um, So there's that. And then fortunately, my father is still alive and he's a history buff. He, I shoot him texts all the time. I'll be like, hey, back in Buffalo during this time, what was this like? Or what was that like? Or, you know, was this street still here? Um, fortunately, the streets have not changed. Um, so really, it's just, you know, how do you take all that great stuff and then just just sprinkle it, you know, like a, like just lightly over the service of the story, because the, the main thrust of the story should be, you know, who killed, who done it. Right. Now, you mentioned that um, you watched 40-0 movies and read 40-0 mm-hmm. books and that you're your sleuth is a movie buff. So what yes. 1940s era book or, or, or movie would you recommend if readers wanted to explore some? Oh, wow. That's a great question. There's so many. Um, I mean, it's always a great idea. If, if you want to get a sense of the times, the classics are still the classics. You know, Raymond Chandler, anything by Raymond Chandler is good. If you want to watch the movies, pick out a, a Bogart movie like Casablanca or um, some of the Cagney movies. And, and I do actually, I sprinkle these, you know, sometimes Betty, I have Betty mention the movies that she's watching. So like at one point, 
I think it was in the first book, she makes a reference to a Jimmy Cagney movie, Angels with Dirty Faces. Um, but pretty much anything with Humphrey Bogart in it from that time is, I mean, if you haven't seen Casablanca, you have to stop, put everything down, go see Casablanca like right now, because that's like the gold standard of the times. Um, Maltese Falcon is another one. Go watch the Maltese Falcon. Oh, and I personally have seen both of them. So I, I agree with you. Oh, I've seen them a couple of times. Yeah, it's, they're, they're, they, they're classics for, they stick around for a reason. Now, what, what led you to set your story actually during the war instead of in the period before it, which, you know, the, a lot of the, the golden age mysteries are set in the period between the two world wars or after it? Why, why did you pick the actual war itself? Well, as, as I mentioned earlier, the, Betty is a, is a very loose inspiration from my grandmother who worked. There, there was the Bell Air, Aircraft, Bell Airplane facility. Um, it was a little north of the, of the city of Buffalo. It was in a town called Wheatfield, which is between Buffalo and Niagara Falls. And my grandmother was a Rosie the Riveter. She made airplanes. My, my dad said uh, mostly she, she did body work. She made the fuselages. Um, so really I picked that era because, you know, I wanted to, I wanted a character. I started with my grandmother and I wanted to stay in that time period, you know, and then a lot of, I, I didn't think about it at the time, but somebody brought it up to me afterwards. A lot of war books that feature women are featuring women in roles in military roles, they're, you know, or, or war roles. They're nurses, they're spy, you know, they work at Bletchley House or if they're over in, Bu in Buffalo or in, not in Buffalo, in England, um, they might be drivers attached to the military. I mean, they're, they're in some sort of either, some sort of support role for the armed services. And this was really an opportunity to look at the war from the other side of the coin, from the home front. You know, what were, what were the young ladies who were left behind, who were now doing all these jobs that men used to do, what were they doing? What was their life like? Um, so it was an opportunity to kind of, something I didn't realize when I started, but I have really enjoyed since is exposing another side of history that, you know, people might not know about, but it really all started with my grandmother. And, and what did you discover about the way the war affected civilians on, on the home front, either you know, while you're doing your research or from talking to your grandmother that maybe you didn't know before, or maybe that you would like readers to, who are used to seeing the war through the perspective of the folks who are actually in the battles. What did, what did you learn about how it affected the people who had kind of have to keep the home fires burning and keep the, the literal war machinery coming? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of the same. My, my husband was in the army for 20 plus years. Um, and he had a couple of deployments and I don't, the, one, it was not dreary. Everybody thinks of the war years as, oh, it was dreary and depressing. And, you know, I mean, the nation was coming out of the great depression in these years, but it was really warm, the war manufacturing that, that brought us out of the great depression. Um, but it was not, people didn't feel dreary. It wasn't gray. It wasn't grim. There was a lot of serious things going on. Um, and they, of course, they worried uh, about, especially if they had loved ones fighting. Um, 
but there was a great deal of determination. Um, they were not, you know, sober sides and, and not, ha- they had fun. You know, they made the best of it. Um, and, and I think a lot of people, when they think of the military and that they don't think of the families, the, these families in a lot of ways made at the same level of sacrifices as young men who went overseas to fight in a different way. Um, but they did things they'd never done before. And I think a lot of these young women found out that they could do things that they'd never done before. Because even after, even after World War I sort of started it a little bit, you know, with the, you had the land girls over in Europe and a lot of the women had to start doing things they'd never done before. Um, and I think World War II was really the tipping point where there was more to life than just getting married and having a family. And they could do it, and they wanted to do it, and they were proud to do it. Yeah. So there's there's a whole. I think anybody who wants to learn about about you know wartime culture in America really should. I mean, not just don't just study the battles. Don't just read about the the generals and even the the, the nurses and the, you know pick up a you need. It's it's interesting to see. The, the level of determination and, and character that these people left behind were like, this was as much their war as the boys overseas. And while your Homefront mystery series will help readers understand, well, of course, mystery, but also help them understand what life was like for those at, at uh, home, your mm-hmm. other series, The Laurel Highlands Mysteries, is completely different. Completely uh, so readers, different. <laughs> readers, will, readers will learn completely different things if they read that one. So would you tell us a little about that series? Yeah, sure. Um, the Laurel Highlands is, is contemporary. So, you know, you're, look, you're looking at a completely different time period. You're in the now um, with all the technology and, you know, stuff that goes on in the now. Um, it's a police procedural series. So although Betty wants to be a professional investigator, she's very much an amateur at this point in her life. The characters in the Laurel Highland series are very much professionals. One of them is a Pennsylvania state trooper and the other one is a defense attorney. Um, So you're looking at two professionals who they're, that this is all they do. This is what they do is is crime. They, they live it, breathe it, work, you know. Um, it's set in Pennsylvania. It's set in rural Pennsylvania. Um, the Laurel Highlands are, um, let me visualize a map here, uh, slightly southeast of Pittsburgh. Um, and there's nothing out there. You know, it's it's trees and it's still, they, they still rely on mining, on coal mining is still a big thing down there. There are no big cities um, it's landlocked, so the lake isn't there. So it's a completely different culture. It's a completely different time period, and it's completely different people. Um, I enjoy it just as much. It'll, it allows me to do different things. Each one of them, you know, I get to do different things with my writing. Um, but that series is, you know, and but it's still crime. You know, the dead bodies still show up. I, I used to joke with my friend Annette Dashafi. We were at... Uh, BoucherCon a couple years ago when it was in Florida and she writes in a fictional 
southwestern PA County, um, and we would we would joke that we were depopulating southwestern Pennsylvania one book at a time. <laughs> I like the rural Pennsylvania version of Cabot Cove syndrome. A little bit, yeah. There, there's at least I'm at least I'm dealing with a five county area, <laughs> not just one town. Um, but it is it is small town. It is, you know. And so, so how do you juggle writing a contemporary police procedural set in rural Pennsylvania with a historical war era series with an amateur sleuth set in a big city? How do you, how do you juggle writing? Um, well, I do not try to write two books at the same time. That would be too much, I think. Um, it takes me about six months to go from raw idea to at least a, a semi-polished draft. So what I will do is during six months of the year I'm writing in 1942, which is what I'm doing right now. I just started the third book um, in the series, but I am about to turn in the manuscript for the fourth Laurel Highland book, which will come out in August. So while I, I can, what I can do is I can edit one while I write the other. So the first six months of the year is all about writing historical while editing contemporary. And then the second half of the year, it's flipped. Um, so I don't, I do not try to write at this, write in two time periods at the same time. I think that would be too much. Um, and then once I get that, you know, so there's that flip. Um, during the day, there is a time for writing new words, you know, drafting what, whatever, putting new words on the page. And then usually later in the afternoon, um, I will switch to whatever editing task I have for, for the next book, you know, whether it's reviewing the developmental edit for my editors or the red line edits or, you know, whatever there has to be done. So it's flip the, you know, eat one half of the year is one way and then take it down to the day level. First part of the day is writing, second half of the day is editing. And I just flip flop throughout the year. And then I have a schedule that says, Mary, you're, or Liz, you're supposed to be doing this to now. Stop doing that and do this. And I'm sure it's a very impressive schedule to, to see written out. Yes, yes. It, at every, you know, it's, I have my calendar. I'm, all di I'm a digital person. I've never been big on paper because it just gets destroyed. But um, I do have a digital calendar and I have digital planning tools. And one part is color-coded for historical and the other part is color-coded for the contemporary. So there's lots of colored lines and it probably would not make any sense to anybody else, but it makes sense to me. And I guess that's the most important thing. <laughs> You talked about how you do your research for your historical series. How do you do your research for your contemporary police procedural? Um, I've done, it, well, I go before COVID, in the, in the before times, <laughs> um, I, I used to visit the area a lot to get a sense of what was, what, you know, the different seasons and what's going on. And I would, you know, that kept me in touch with the culture and and take pictures and okay let's get a sense of my place so that i can really make people feel that they're in the area um i've also read a lot of i have a whole shelf full of procedural books um i have leslie budowitz's uh law you know crime cooks and crime lawyers and crimes book um so if i have questions about legal procedure 
I can go to that. I have a couple of police procedural books, Lee Laughlin's uh, reference, which is if you're going to write anything with that has anything to do with police, you and you're a writer, you should really have that on your shelf. Um, I've gone to a couple of different conferences uh, that deal with how to write realistic police procedure, because that's the thing about police procedure. You've got to get the procedure right. That Because you'll get slammed hard if you have a police officer who's a main character and he doesn't know the basics of legal procedure. So you want, you don't want to get too, it's another balancing act. You don't want to make people feel like they're drowning in legal in detail, um, but you have to have enough detail to present your characters as competent um, and, and how to, how to cheat creatively, as Lee would say, um, because a lot of police work is, is very, very boring. It's like watching paint dry. Um, and then, so I've gone to a couple of conferences. I've done a couple of police academies where you, you know, citizens police academies, where you go and you get taught by police officers and this is how they do it. And done a couple of ride-alongs with police officers. Um, and then I had a Pennsylvania State Trooper in my email contacts that when I had a question for him, I would email him and say, hey, you know, I, I have this question. He's retired. I have to re find a replacement because I don't have his, email, his personal email. Um, and I have the same for a lawyer. I, I'm in contact with a gentleman who used to be a, a public defender for Allegheny County. So when I have a question of, hey, is this how it really works? I can email him and he will either get back to me and say, yep, that's, that's good. Or nope, you, I've had to rewrite whole swaths of books um, because he's like, yeah, it doesn't really happen that way. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. I once, th it, it, my latest question was about getting a subpoena, like how difficult it was for an attorney to get a subpoena. And he's like, yeah, yeah, not very difficult at all. We used to have pre-printed forms in, in, in the office. I'm like, seriously, you don't have to go in front of a judge? He's like, no, you just fill out a form. He's like, there's very little legal over. As opposed to getting a search warrant where you, the police officer really has to argue in front of the judge. Yeah, it doesn't. It, they're literally pre-printed forms with a judge's signature stamped on the bottom and they just fill it out and turn it in and that's it. Wow. Like, oh, well, there, there goes that 2000 word scene. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> well I, I'm sure law enforcement and historians will appreciate the uh, care you take with uh, getting the, getting the details right. I hope so. I've had a couple of uh, police officers read and they're like, yeah, this is, this is pretty, you know, cutting away all the dry and boring stuff that you do. Um, and there's always like Lee refers to it as believable make-believe, um, but they've, they've read it and they've said, yeah, you, you do, you get it pretty close. So that always makes me happy. And I have not had, had a reader be like, this is, I've actually, I've had readers who appreciate that I don't do the NCIS thing where, you know, you have a, you have a laser that makes a 3D hologram of your crime scene. Yeah, that doesn't they don't do that. You know, the <laughs> DNA results do not come back in five minutes. Yes, I, I have actually, I, I participated in one Citizens Police Academy and they pretty much referred to most of those shows as science fiction, so. <laughs> yes. yes, and it's dangerous too because I was in one of my police academies and um, one of the forensic specialists said he spends as much time on the stand refuting 
what people believe should be happening based on television as he does actually testifying about what did happen. Yeah, because people have based they've seen CSI. They think, oh, well, it should be working like this. You should know all this stuff. And he's like, no, we don't know all that stuff. <laughs> I've actually heard some folks interviewed on true crime podcasts where they flat out admitted, you know, they didn't understand why the police didn't do X, Y, Z. Because yeah. well, I saw on television, it's like, yeah. oh, I'm sure all the police person cringes every time they hear something like that. Yes. Young, attractive young women, you know, barreling down streets wearing tight skirts and three-inch stiletto heels. No, that doesn't happen either. <laughs> well, now you, you've, you've told us some of the uh, uh, secrets we didn't know about subpoenas. So uh, mm-hmm. how about telling us some secrets we don't know about the Laurel Highlands of Pennsylvania? Oh, gosh. Secrets you don't know. Um, again, you, you hear Pennsylvania, you, you, you think Philadelphia, you may think Pittsburgh, and just like well, yeah, Pennsylvania state exists. Yeah, yeah. Pennsylvania is another one that everybody, you've got the two cities on the end, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. They're not really the same because um, Pittsburgh was more like Buffalo than it is like Philadelphia. You know, it was a steel town. It was, and everybody still thinks of Pittsburgh as a, as a steel town with smoky skies and a lot of pollution. And that's not true anymore. Um, things you didn't know about the Laurel Highlands. Um, it is, it's a huge, huge, the Marcellus Shale, which, and it was never, fracking, it was a big to-do about fracking and it never really panned out, but um a large majority of the coal deposits in the United States run right through the Laurel Highlands, um, which is why mining was and still is such a big part of the local economy. Um, people don't think that, you know, they'll think rolling Pennsylvania hills and it's like, no, they're actually, you know, there's a lot of industrial work going on there. Um, but at the same time, we have, oh, falling water. I don't know if, if anybody out there is familiar with Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, there are two Frank Lloyd Wright houses in the Laurel Highlands. So you have falling water, which was built for the Kaufman family um, way back in the day and is now a museum. And then you have Kentuck Knob, which is another one. It was a, a big example of Lloyd Wright's uh, architectural style, his, his functionality, that everything had to be a function. Um, Falling Water is now on a national registry of, oh, what was the name of the registry? It was a big deal because now the, now Pennsylvania is the first state to have two sites on this registry, one being Independence Hall in Philadelphia and then Falling Water. So um, you've got that. Um, We love to ski. Skiing is a big deal down there. Um, lots of ski resorts in the wintertime. Um, what else? What else? What else? What else? Oh, things you might not know about Southwestern Pennsylvania. Probably guessing ninety um, percent. a lot of history and a lot of history. Pardon me. No, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm probably guessing that most of us ninety percent of what you just said, most of us didn't know. <laughs> yeah, and uh, history. Unless you are a history buff you would be surprised how much uh, 
especially French and Indian War history and early revolutionary history goes through here. Um, we have a lot of places in Pittsburgh, you know, Washington, Mount Washington, Washington's Landing, because George Washington was actually here. And oh, here's and here's an interesting tidbit. Um, Pennsylvania, Washington's trip to Pittsburgh contributed to the American Revolution in the French and Indian War. Apparently Washington needed to travel uh, the Yakagani River to Pittsburgh and he could not, he got stopped at the falls, that the Yakagani Falls. And he said, no one would ever be able to ford the water. So he had to take an overland route. It was incredibly expensive and to recoup the cost the British government imposed the first of the series of taxes that would directly lead to the American Revolution. It all started right here. <laughs> because George Washington didn't want to get his feet wet. Uh, because George didn't think, I mean, he was willing to get his feet wet, but he didn't think it would do any good. <laughs> I, I, I'm just kidding. I'm, I, I'm actually in, in Newport, Rhode Island right now. Okay. Uh, which is another big colonial um, revolutionary war site of Washington started his march um yes you know from here going down to yorktown so yep. um this is this yeah. is a, I'm, they take george washington very seriously here so that was that was only a a, a slight joke I'm, I'm sure oh they take him very seriously they take the whole thing yeah they take the whole thing very seriously here in pittsburgh too and then there was that whole whiskey rebellion several years later where the american government tried to tax whiskey and everybody in western pennsylvania kind of revolted we're very revolutionary in the in Western Pennsylvania. We don't like being told what to do. <laughs> and now I don't, I don't want you to give any secrets about your books away, but can you tell us a little sure. bit about your third and fourth, well, the third book in your Homefront series and the fourth book in your Highland series? Sure. Well, the third book, which will release, well, the second, the second book's coming out. The third book in the Homefront series will release this time next year. So around February, 2022, it's called The Lessons We Learn. And I'm in this one, Lee's, or Betty's friend, Lee, his father has gone missing. His father has been drinking heavily for several months, turned into a bit of an alcoholic. Um, and he goes missing. And when the book opens, he's been missing for two weeks and Lee kind of doesn't care uh, because his father's not a good drunk. He's not the kind of guy that just passes out on the couch. He gets kind of violent. Um, and his father's body turns up in the Buffalo River um, and has been there obviously for quite some time. And at first they think, oh, well, he just got drunk and fell in the river. And it turns out, no, he was murdered. And Betty has to step in because, of course, Lee has been very vocal about how he doesn't care that his father was, has been gone and good riddance to bad rubbish, which, of course, elevates him right to the top of the police suspect list. So Betty has to step in and investigate in order to keep her friend uh, out of prison. And the fourth Laurel Highlands book, which will come out in August of 2021, um, starts with a young girl, uh, it's summer, and there's been a lot of rain, and there's a young girl uh, in town who, they find her bike, but they can't find her, and they find her in the middle of the river, um, and Jim and Sally pull her out of the river, and after she gets dried off and calms down, she says, I think I saw a dead body, 
Um, and it turns out that yes, indeed, she did see a dead body um, of a local environmentalist. And at the same time, the guy's partner turns up uh, severely injured and unconscious in a local hospital. And the question is, were the two things connected? And Jim has to investigate um, and finds, well, shenanigans ensue. <laughs> and is, so you, you've got books out now that can uh, keep readers engaged with the shenanigans while they're waiting oh, yes. for those to come out. So where can they buy a copy of The Stories We Tell, which is the second book in the Homefront series, or, or one of the books in your Laurel Highland series? Um, you can get The Stories We Tell or The Enemy We Don't Know, which is the first book. And everything can be bought on Amazon, of course. Um, ebook and paperback can be bought on Amazon um, in both series. Um, if you are a Nook reader, they can also be purchased through barnesandnobles.com. Um, and the books should be available in your local independent bookstore. And since I'm a huge fan of local independent bookstores, I encourage you to go that way. Um, because I'm with a small press, you might have to ask the bookstore to order it, but they are available through the Ingram distributor. So any bookstore uh, would be able to order you a print copy. Any, any uh, Buffalo area or Pittsburgh area bookstores you wanna Yes. Uh, well, Mystery Lovers Bookshop in Oakmont, Pennsylvania. Um, that's my local independent. They have my stuff in stock. You can go to their website at mysterylovers.com. Um, they ship nationwide. And they're a fabulous bunch of people. So if you don't have an independent bookstore, um, feel free to jump on their website. They have millions of titles and they'd be happy to help you out. It's a Mystery Lovers Bookstore. Yeah, Mystery Lovers Bookshop. Bookshop. At, yes, at mysterylovers.com. Right. Perfectly named store. <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's a, a staple. It's been there, I think they just last year celebrated their 30th birthday wow. at Halloween. They were started at Halloween. I think last year was 30 years. They've been around for a while. Even, you know, people outside Pittsburgh know them. They're kind of a staple. They won the Raven Award from the, from Mystery Writers of America several years ago for their, their contributions to the mystery genre, you know, so they're, even people outside of Pittsburgh, you may have heard, may, they may have heard of Mystery Lovers. I know other authors often talk about it. And for readers who want to maybe uh, talk with you more about either independent bookstores or World War II history or the Pens wilds of Pennsylvania, where can they connect with you? Um, you can go to my website at lizmillern.com and sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you. I only send them out once a month. Um, and that's the best way to keep on, to be the first to be in the know about what's going on. And you know, you'll get some free short stories in the process. Um, you can also connect with me on Facebook, um, facebook.com slash Liz Milliron. You can like the page, I'm over there. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram um, where my handle is at Liz Milliron um, and get some, pictures and glimpses into my life and what I'm doing and see lots of pictures of my dog. <laughs> my dog features heavily in all my social media. He's dog. my social media darling. Yes, dog and cat and other pet pictures are always great. Yeah, it's funny how much more interested people are in my dog than in like me. <laughs> A picture of my dog will get like 
50 likes and a picture of me, you know, 10, 12. <laughs> I posted a picture. I have a, well, I have a retired racing greyhound. Oh, wow. So he's, but I went up to Buffalo to visit my sister and she has a two-year-old, my nephew's two. Oh, the picture of him with the dog. Oh, that was, that was gold. People loved that. <laughs> Baby and a dog in the same picture. Perfect. Yes, absolutely. There's a winner. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me today, Liz, and, and talking about your. Yes. Thank you for you. having me. It's been, a, been, uh, it's been fun. <laughs> And thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest was Liz Milliron, author of The Stories We Tell, The Second Homefront Mystery. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. Thanks listeners for joining me for another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listened. Follow the podcast on social media. I'm on Facebook as The Cozy Corner Podcast and Twitter and Instagram as podcast underscore cozy. Now you can support me on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month and get a shout out on an episode of The Cozy Corner. Support at higher levels gains access to patron-only posts, thank you gifts, and giveaways. Sign up at www.patreon.com slash author Alexia Gordon. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.